You are listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit jointheventure.com or facebook.com slash jointheventure. We hope you enjoy. Happy New Year. I will never forget New Year's Eve 1989, right before it became 1990. I was out at my grandparents' house. They live out in, in, in rural eastern North Carolina. Maybe you've heard of Cresswell, North Carolina. Have you ever heard of that little place? I know a few of you know the place. It's the middle of nowhere. Like, I'm talking about, they don't even have a gas station right now. If you run out of gas in Cresswell, sorry, like, that's it. Maybe there's a nice tractor going by and he'll share gas with you, but that's it. Um, there, there, there's, there's, there's no way, there are more chickens than there are people. Like, this is the kind of place. And so, this is 1989. I'm out there with my, my grandparents. And their celebration in New Year's was really cool. They would get everybody together in this big field near their house. They would just set off fireworks and firecrackers and make all kinds of noise. And it was a lot of fun. Um, but, but what sticks out to me is a conversation my granddad had with me. Uh, he was probably in his 70s. He was mid-70s at the time. And, uh, and I, I was only about eight years old, which kind of, I know I'm a young man, but that's, that tells you how old I am. And so sitting there with my, my grandfather, and he looks down and he says, Chris, this is a big one. This is a big one, 1990. It's the beginning of a new decade. And not only that, but it's the last decade of this century. And this is a guy, mid-70s, I mean, he grew up, I think he was born in 1926, and he saw the rise of, you know, commercial airline and, and, and telephones in people's houses and TV and all the different things that have happened in technology, medical advances that would blow someone's mind from an era before. And here he stands on the cusp of the final decade of the century. And he said that to me. And then the last thing he said was, man, I have no idea what is ahead of us, but it is going to be great to watch. Never forget. It's a special moment I have with my granddad, 1989. New year came and, uh, whoo, was he ever right? The nineties, right? That's the decade of MC Hammer and NSYNC, right? Kurt Cobain, Monica Lewinsky, go America. We did good. We did good in the nineties, but also the birth of two little guys, uh, the cell phone, the internet, and how much has the world changed just since 1989? And I just think about New Year's because though it's a really great time to reflect on where we've been, it's an amazing time to dream about where we could be. And so I just want to kind of start this moment with a simple question. What could 2015 be like for you? What could it be like for you? Uh, the punchline to every New Year's Day joke is something to do with a resolution. Right, because resolutions are difficult. We, we, we try to set them and we fail. I was trying to explain resolutions to my kids this week. And uh, my daughter, Savannah, she's five years old. And I said, what, uh, what do you want to do different in 2015 that you didn't do in 2014? And she thought about it, man. She was like, um, you know what? I think we should go to Sweet Frog more often. That was, that was her answer. I was like, that sounds like a great year. So we got that in, you know, in the plans. Hopefully we won't fail at that. But you know, most New Year's resolutions revolve around habits. It's about taking us out of one rut and getting us into another rut, hopefully a better rut than the one that we were in. And, um, you know, I think that we, we often talk about losing things. People want to lose weight or they want to stop overeating or they want to stop overspending. They want to spend less time on Facebook. They want to spend less time isolated from people and spend more time with people. And, and I think that there's something innately we're uh, aware of because of New Year's resolutions and those types of decisions uh, that makes us make those decisions. And it's this, that in order to gain something good, we often have to lose something, either bad or not so good. Is that true? In order to gain something good, we often have to lose or let go of something not so good or maybe even bad. And it's hard. It's hard to keep those 
resolutions or those goals, and maybe you're the type of person that does it at your birthday or just when you, when you start a new uh, school season or a new work season or, or however your, your calendar goes, like there's this moment where you say, I want to restart, I want to reboot, but it's hard. And there's a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's because we're scared. Change is scary, right? I mean, sometimes it's because we're comfortable. We're comfortable. I like the old thing that I did. I recognize that I want to change, but I like the old thing that I did, and so we're comfortable. And we want to change something, but there's this familiarity to the old thing that we kind of hold on to. Maybe it's because we're just uh, plain lazy. Um, I think that's me a lot of times. I should do that, but pff, I don't want to. <laughs> I'm not going to. It's not going to happen. Um, we're just lazy. Uh, sometimes I think it's because we don't understand the urgency of the change. We've all heard about people that found out that a bad habit was killing them, but they found out too late to change anything, right? And so we just don't understand the urgency. There's a lot of reasons why these types of changes are difficult. If you're here today, there's a really good chance being here on the first Sunday of the year, whereas I said for the last several weeks, Christmas Eve and Christmas time is is the most attended time for church. Uh, I found that the first Sunday of the year is one of the least attended times for church because it's like, man, I'm tired. I've been traveling. I'm just not going to come. And so if you're here today, there's a good chance that it's because you think there's something good about that. I wanted to start my year off right and be in church or, or I wanted to try to get off on the right foot. And, and so I want to commend you for that because I agree with you. I think there's good in being here and I think there's a lot that good could come from it. And this is why we're starting a new teaching series today to kind of jumpstart and gear us up for the new year. Uh, as a society, we've got this thing that we do. Uh, and let me explain it to you. Um, it it kind of goes like this. Life is not going the way you expected it. Or maybe you're in kind of a rut, or maybe you don't really understand where you need to be in life. And so we do this thing. We take this journey, and what we say is, I've got to go find myself. Have you heard that phrase or that sentiment? It's like, I've got to go find myself. And so we set off on this quest, and sometimes it's a road trip across the nation or the state. Sometimes it's, you know, some kind of crazy midlife crisis. Sometimes we just do something weird, like try to learn how to play the banjo. Like, but we're like, I've got to go find myself, because the, the quest is real. We want to go out and we want to discover something, but the path is nearly impossible to find. You're like, I, I guess I'm out there somewhere. Where do I look? Like, what exit do I take? And which roads do I turn on? And what's the speed limit? I have no idea. But I want to get there. And so we go out and we try to find ourselves. And this quest can lead us to all kinds of different situations. Good things, bad things. The quest often leads people to God and church. I want to go find myself. And so we look into spiritual things. And it's a real quest. And here's my question. What if the key to finding yourself was not so much about going out and discovering your identity or your niche in the world? What if the key was not so much about you, but actually about losing yourself? What if the key to finding yourself was actually losing yourself? It's kind of a backward statement, but I want to explain this. Why we call this series, we're calling this series Lose Myself, because we hold on to the controls of our life so closely and it often ends up to be our undoing we think we can manage everything and the reality is we just can't and so this series is called lose myself finding jesus by letting go of control and if we can just discover what it means to do that and to live in that i believe 2015 will be an amazing year for all of us uh, every week we take some time to look at the bible for the answers to some of life's most important questions. And I, I love that I get to stand up here and do that every week. And I get to share that time with some other people too. But uh, we're going to do that this week. We're going to be uh, in the Bible. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, which is at the last third of your Bible. Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn there. We'll be in Matthew chapter 16. 
If you don't have a Bible, we give them away for free. Uh, this would be a good time to pick up one. It's the first day of the year. So pick it up and decide to read some of it this year. We've got some scattered along under some of the seats in here, some at the back near the coffee and in the host area in the back. Also, the scriptures I'm going to read are going to be on the screen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, and Matthew is one of the four books in the Bible that is explicitly about Jesus and his teachings and his life. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, and we'll be in that first one, Matthew. Uh, put your thumb there. We're going to be checking it out in a second. But before we check into Matthew chapter 16, we'll be reading in verse 21. I want to give you a little bit of background, okay? Jesus has been through and into a lot of stuff in this first 16 chapters of the book of Matthew. And um, so... This is important for us to understand, like how he got to the place where we're getting today. When Jesus was about 30 years old, he sets off on this, uh, this, this pilgrimage-type journey through the countryside, the towns and villages of what is modern-day Palestine. And he goes from village to village to village, and he's doing something very simple. He begins to teach a very simple message. And he's teaching this messages uh, in synagogues. Synagogues are the, the Jewish houses of worship, and that's where the people in each village would come to gather together and, and worship God and read from the law and find out what it was that God had for them. And he'd go and he'd teach there, and he'd explain the law, the Old Testament of the Bible is what we call it. And then he'd go to people's houses, and he would teach, and sometimes he'd be on the side of the road, and he'd meet some people, and he would teach, and then he would go stand in a field somewhere, and he would teach, and he would get in a boat, and he would go out into the water a little bit, because there's a lot of people, and he would teach so that they could see them, and he would get up on a hill, and he would teach, and this was Jesus' model, and he taught a very simple message. If you look through all of his teachings, there are a lot of practical, everyday life lessons, but overall, his, overall, his overarching message was this. The kingdom of God is about to be born, so you need to get your mess straight and turn your life to God. This is the way he said it. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, things are about to change. God has been setting up this situation whereby he could come into the world and tell you about his love and his grace and offer salvation to all the world. And so everyone needs to get a self-check between them and God. That was the message Jesus was teaching from town to town, from village to village. And as he did this, he collected large amounts of people who just wanted to hear him and see him. And some of them came for various reasons. Some of them came just uh, because they, they heard that something was going on, so they just came to look and see. Man, what is this guy? Why are there thousands of people here watching? I got to see. Some people came for selfish motives. Uh, Jesus did this incredible thing. He claimed to have this authority from God, but anyone could do that. I could walk out in the street and say, I got authority from God. You could. The guy downtown that plays a saxophone, you know that guy? He could claim that. Everyone could claim they have authority from God, but Jesus said, I'm going to prove it. I'm going to do miracles. I'm going to heal people who are sick. I'm going to raise people from the dead. I'm going to multiply food for multitudes of people to show you that I do have this authority. So Jesus is doing this, and the people that were coming around him, many of them were there to see the show and hopefully get something good out of it, a free meal, maybe a healing. But there were a select few who, in hearing what Jesus was saying, watching the way that he lived, and reading between the lines and putting everything together, they began to understand what Jesus was all about. One of these guys was a guy named Peter. Peter is one of the 12 closest friends of Jesus. We call him the 12 disciples. And uh, What we're going to read, actually, we're going to get to verse 21, but like I said, I'm giving you the background to get up to 21. We're going to read a place, look at a place where Peter made a statement that revolutionized what it meant to follow Jesus. It's crazy. And it goes like this, basically. Jesus is sitting with those 12 guys. I'm sure it was after a busy day. And there's all these people who want his attention. There's all these people who want his energy. Peter's sitting with his guys. I always picture him around a campfire. I don't know. I like campfires. I don't know. Maybe they were doing something different. But he's around a campfire, maybe poking a stick at the fire. And he says, hey, guys, who are people saying that I am? 
which is an interesting question. Because a lot of people were coming out to see Jesus, and Jesus wanted to kind of, you know, poll the crowd. What are people saying about me? And the disciples answered. They said, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Which is interesting, because John the Baptist was actually Jesus' cousin. And I'm pretty sure Jesus never said, hey, guys, I'm John the Baptist. But some people were saying that. They're thinking that about him. And he said, well, and other people, they think that you're a great prophet, like, like Elijah or Jeremiah. And these are these men who lived in ancient times and who were the spokesmen for God to kings and to the nation. And some of the people who were following Jesus were thinking, maybe he's just some kind of reincarnation of one of these prophets. Which is also pretty crazy. Because let's say we had a powerful, important person in our midst. Let's say uh, we'll choose the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Everybody knows who that is. And he's in our midst and he's sitting with us and goes, hey guys, who are people saying that I am? And we'd say, well, people say that you're John F. Kennedy. Or you're Bill Clinton. No, we would never say that. That would be weird. Because we, you're obviously not John F. Kennedy. You're obviously not Bill Clinton. Like, we know those are different people. You wouldn't say that. I think the interesting thing about people believing Jesus might have been some sort of reincarnation of a great prophet is because he was doing things that they just simply couldn't explain. He was doing miracles. He was saying things that were powerful. He was quoting scripture like nobody's business. Like, man, how does this guy recall scripture like that? And the only way they could ascribe these abilities to him was to say, maybe, maybe he's just like a prophet from old times revisiting us. Maybe it's Elijah. Maybe it's Jeremiah. Maybe it's one of these great men. I don't know. I think that just tells us something about the impression Jesus was living on the crowds. Moving on, though. Jesus asked these questions. Who are people saying that the Son of Man is? Some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say that you're one of the great prophets. And Jesus could in that moment, he could have done what I think a lot of us would do and go, for real? Sweet, that's pretty cool. I like Elijah, I like Jeremiah. John the Baptist, good guy. He didn't do that. You know what he does? He does the thing that Jesus often does when, when he's in conversation. Jesus asks questions. So he points another question right back at them. And this is going to be on the screen behind me here. This is Matthew 16, 15. He looked at his disciples and he says, okay, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? When it comes to God, it doesn't really matter what other people are saying about him. It doesn't really matter what other people are doing for him. What matters is, what are you saying about him? What are you doing about him and for him? When Jesus points this question to them, I can only hear it being spoken to me. I shared with the volunteers this morning, like, I get this cool opportunity to come up here every week, and I get to talk about God and the Bible and all these things. And, and sometimes I wonder, like, I wonder if people heard what I said. I wonder what people are saying about what I said. I wonder how so-and-so is doing with their faith. I wonder how this problem is coming along. You know what? Th that's important, and it does matter, and I do love you and care for you. You know what really matters? Jesus looking at me saying, Chris, who do you say that I am? Because it doesn't really matter what anybody else is saying about me. What do you say about me? And so Jesus turned this question on the disciples. Now, it's interesting what could have happened. There could have been a long silence. Uh, there, there could have been a moment of reflection. There could have been some discussion among the disciples. But what I love is what's recorded is that we hear this guy Peter speak up. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Matthew 16, 16. Uh, Simon uh, Peter is, is this kind of loudmouth. It got him in trouble a lot. He'd say things he shouldn't say, and I can totally understand that. Um, but this time he nails it. This is what Peter says. Simon Peter answered, well, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's his answer. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, well, blessed are you, Simon, which is Peter's other name, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades 
will not overcome it. Who are people saying that I am? Peter says, or who who are you saying that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, "I, I know what I think. I think you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, if you've been in church very long, you've, You've definitely heard this story before. And you might have heard the phrase, yeah, Jesus is the son of God, no big deal. But you've got to understand that what Peter says right here is revolutionary. It entirely reconstructs what it means to follow Jesus. Because up until this point, following Jesus meant, hey, there's Jesus, I'm going to follow him. And you're just kind of walking behind him. But Jesus, Peter shifts everything by putting a label on this. He says two things. First, he says, you are the Messiah. Now, I want to give you a little background on that. Messiah uh, was an Old Testament word, and what it meant was the anointed one of God. Prophets for generations had prophesied that someone was going to come from God, and he was going to be the special savior, a Messiah. Actually, the word Christ in Greek is just a, uh, a, a translation of the word Messiah. The word Christ actually means Messiah, anointed one. So we say Jesus is the Christ. What you're saying is Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. And there was this widespread you know, disagreement as to what it means to be the Messiah. Some people believed he would be a military leader. Some people believed he'd just be a government leader. Some people believed he'd just be a prophet that would bring down kind of new laws and new rules. Other people believed other things. But what Peter says in this moment is, Jesus, I've been watching you and I've been listening to you. And I think you're that guy. I'm convinced that you're that guy. Now, that was a strong statement, but there's more. He says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. When he said that, you're the son of the living God, that was a phrase that I'm sure would have taken the air out of any room full of Jewish people. And this is why. Because that phrase was blasphemy. To ever claim that anyone had authority or equality with God the Father in this way by saying something like, yeah, you're the son of God. You are God in the flesh, which is essentially what later we know that Peter believes. He teaches that in other places. And that's what he says by this. To say that is blasphemy. And blasphemy by Jewish law was a crime punishable by death. You don't don't blaspheme. Because if you do, it's a crime punishable by death. If Peter had said this among the wrong audience, he could have been arrested tried and executed with very little questions did you say this yes sir okay well i guess we know what to do it was a very clear-cut law so when jesus says who do you say that i am peter the loudmouth, speaks from conviction he said look I, I can only come to one conclusion that you are who you say you are that you're the messiah and that you're the son of god it's interesting that he says that Because that's the very charge that the Jewish leaders bring against Jesus when they want to crucify him. They drag him off the court. It's it's an overnight, sketchy, back deal, back room deal, court scene. You should read it. Like, he totally doesn't get justice. But in that moment, what they say is, we're accusing you of blasphemy. Is it true that you said that you're the son of God? That's what they're accusing him of. But Peter says it first. Powerful, powerful moment. And then Jesus replies to him, in turn, with a very powerful statement. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter. He's not just telling him what his name is. Peter already knew his name. He's a smart guy. I'm telling you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus says this statement, and it's kind of this little joke that he makes there. Uh, if you know the language that they're speaking, which we don't, we speak English, but the word, the name Peter, it actually means literally rock. Rock, like stone, like actually I think like pebble, stone, but here we are with Jesus looking at Peter. Peter's made this huge state, statement. And Jesus looks back at Peter and says, okay, all right, I'm the Messiah, Son of God. You got me there. You're Peter. Rock. 
And on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I personally, uh, when I look at that, I see the interpretation and what eventually happens with Peter. I don't personally believe that he was talking about Peter being the foundation of the church. Like one day Peter's going to grow up, he's going to be the first pope, he's going to start the church. Uh, Jesus started the church, that's, that's clear, it's in Acts chapter 2, you look at that and it's, it's begun, but Peter gets to share the sermon. I think the rock that Jesus is building the sermon on, the, the church on, let me say that again, I think the rock that Jesus promises to build the church on is Peter's statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In fact, when, we, uh, when people take the big step in, to become a Christian here at Adventure and we baptize them, uh, one of the questions we ask is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Because it's the same statement. It's the statement that the church has been built on for thousands of years. That's the background. Okay, you ready? That's the background. Now we're going to get to Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Uh, it's just a couple of verses, and it's going to kick us off into this series, Lose Myself. Matthew 16, 21, here it goes. And from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and then raised to life. So up to this point, Jesus hasn't been very crystal clear with exactly what his mission was. But after this point, Jesus goes, okay, you've had your training, you've been following me around, you know who I am. Let me tell you what I came to do. I came to die. And he explains it in more detail later. But this is the place where we see him explain in detail, I came to die. That is what I came to do. When he gives him this uh, explanation, I I can only imagine what it must have been like for the disciples to sit in here, their mentor, their leader, their teacher, their friend. Say, yeah, here's what I came to do. I came to die. Can you imagine sitting with one of your closest friends? And they're just sitting with you like, hey, listen, I'm going to tell you, um, a couple months I'm going to go to town. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the government, and then I'm going to die. Well, what would your reaction be? No, that's, that's dumb. Why would you do that? We got a good thing going here. Like people are following you and you're a great teacher. Don't leave us. Don't do that. Which is exactly what Peter says in verse 22. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He rebukes Jesus. Man, this guy is a loud mouth. He says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus, who possibly just moments ago had been commending Peter for his faith and saying, on this statement, on, your, on this rock, I'll build my church, this is what Jesus turns around and says to Peter. Jesus turns to Peter and says, no, get behind me, Satan. You're stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And I got to pause here because remember, just a couple paragraphs ago, Jesus was telling Peter, good job. I'm the Messiah, the Son of God, good job. Get behind me, Satan. It seems like a quick shift. And honestly, like, as I look at the text, I don't know that it was, like, immediately after that. I don't think it was, like, in the same conversation. It might have been a day later. It might have been a week later. It might have been a few minutes later. But the fact remains that Peter was like, I'm in pretty good standings with Jesus. I feel like I need to give him some advice. I think the first lesson we can learn with this is um, don't tell God what he can't do. Like, just don't do that. That's not a good plan. Jesus was God in the flesh. That, that's, a good, that's a good lesson. If that's the only lesson we walk away from is, like, God says we should do this. Uh, no, may it never be, God. I mean, don't do that. But I think there's another lesson in this, and I think it teaches us something about Jesus. Uh, The Bible teaches us in several places that uh, Jesus was fully God. He was God in the flesh. I teach that. I try to teach it every single week. I think it's one of the most pivotal points of Christianity. But in addition to being fully God, Jesus was able to actually carry a different characteristic. He was also fully human. He was born as a baby. We just spent a lot of time talking about that last couple of weeks over Christmas, and, and, and he, he dealt with pain, he dealt with emotional trauma, we see his friends dying and he's crying, 
We see the separation anxiety he has from being away from people that he loves. He's human. And so I can only put myself vaguely in Jesus' shoes when he makes this statement. All right, guys, I'm doing what I came to do. I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to suffer at the hands of the elders and the teachers and the priests and all this thing. And I'm going to have to die. And in saying that, the human side of him must have gone, oh, man, I don't want to do that. That's going to hurt. In fact, we know for a fact that as Jesus was about to be arrested and take, taken to the cross, he's praying to God. He says, God, if, there, if there's any other way to have this cup taken away from me, please take it away. Because the human side of Jesus knew crucifixion hurts. And seeing the heartache of his loved ones as he has put an undue trial and suffers, that was going to hurt. And so Peter says, may it never be. And Jesus says, no. Don't you try to stop me, Peter. This is what I came to do. And I think that he had to have known that Peter's intentions were good. His motives were good. Peter's his friend. I don't want you to give up your life. I think that's why he addresses Satan. Because he knows that this temptation... This idea that he might could just walk away from the task that he was given to come perform was available to him. And he might change his mind. And Jesus, in all his humanity, looks at Peter, his good friend, and says, get behind me, Satan. I don't know if you believe in Satan, but Jesus did. And there are evil forces in the world. We talked about it about four weeks ago. We talked about the untold story of Christmas, that it's a war story. Remember that? There's spiritual forces out there, and they want to do everything they can to pull us away from God, even Jesus, especially Jesus. And there's a second lesson in this moment, and I think it's that sometimes, look, I don't know what your spiritual background is. I don't know how deep you have delved into Christianity or spiritual things. But sometimes you just got to rebuke Satan. Sometimes you got to say, no, this is not of God. <laughs> Get out of here. That's what he does. That's what he does to Peter. Eventually, Peter understands as we see the work that Peter does. But then Jesus gives us a teaching that we're going to spend the next four weeks studying. Okay? And so I've taken us on a journey because this sentence I'm about to like, highlight, it kind of floats out there all by itself. But when you know the background that it came out of, I think that we can really find something profound. We're going to be in Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, Paul's, the word disciple is a word that means learner or follower. Okay, that's what disciple means. It's akin to the word discipline. To discipline or to disciple is to learn and to figure out, right? Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's what he just said he was going to have to do. I'm going to go have to deny myself take up my cross and do what God has called me to do. And if you want to be my disciple, that's what it takes. But then verse 25, this is our, our anchor verse for the rest of this series. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me, find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? We go on these quests to find ourselves. We have New Year's resolutions. We have all these things we want to accomplish in our life. And Jesus says, look, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself. Let it go. And find me. And I'll give you purpose. And I'll give you meaning. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you grace. I will carry you through the mess that you have been through and get you to a new place so that you can serve me. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. 
lose myself, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. It seems like a backward statement until you realize the trade. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. A trade takes place. Jesus, the son of the living God, time after time, we see that he is the source of life. And he says to us, I, I want to I give you access to that life. I want you to have it. I want it to be yours. I want you to have a 2015 that is great, but it's not going to be on your own power and your own merit. It only comes through me. First, you must give up the life that you've built around yourself and then embrace the life that only I can give. Because we spend so much time building our lives around our ideas, our wants, our desires, our hungers, our passions. I know I have. And it's not all bad. It's not at all innately evil. Some of it's good things, but they're not all from Jesus. Jesus is teaching his disciples about what it means to follow him. He wants them to know it's not a weekend hobby. It's not a social club. It's not a place to come and meet nice people so you can meet girls or meet guys. Maybe a fringe benefit? Eh, I don't know. But this is a lifestyle. It's a life trade. He says, if you want life from me, then you need to find life in me. I'm going to say that again. If you want life from me, then you need to find life in me. Let me be your heartbeat. Anything else is counterfeit. Anything else is artificial. And we pursue these sources of artificial life all the time. And sometimes it's us pursuing our job with all of our, all of our self. I want to have the best career I can possibly have. Sometimes it's finances. I want to have the most money I can have. Sometimes it's relationships. I want to be built up around great relationships as much as I can. There's all these things that we want to build our life around. Sometimes it's, it's really good things. Not that any of those things are bad, necessarily. But sometimes it's even things like, I just want to be the best dad I can be. I want to be the best mom I can be. And even in that, it's us building a construct within ourself. And Jesus says, no, if you want to find life, you've got to lose it and find it in me. He makes one of the most bold statements in the history of the world in John 14, 6 about life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a life for a life. It's a trade. And Jesus, he offers life. It's real, abundant, spiritual life. It begins now, and it lasts into eternity. It's not temporary. It's not fleeting. It's not a passing thrill, but it's life that transcends the here and now and takes us into a place beyond this life. And Jesus offers us that. And that's what he's saying. You know, it could be that this idea, um, I, I want to take a step back, because... Um, I recognize there are people in this room right now who came to church, and right now what I just said sounds like cult language. They're like, okay, oh, I see the Kool-Aid on the tables. Sweet. I'm going home. I want to say this. On one hand, we want to be church for people who don't like church. We say that. We want to be a church that tears down the walls that keep people away from church and God and and build a bridge to, to God, which is Jesus. Jesus is the bridge, right? Like, that's the church we want to be. And so if everything I just said seems really, really heavy and deep and super more committed than I'm ready to be, I want you to know you're still in the right place. You're still on this quest. You're on this journey. My encouragement to you is to stick around. Stick around for a few more weeks and see where this rabbit hole goes because I'm going to tell you, as someone who's been living in it for years now, wow, it makes a difference. It is real life. So on the one hand, we want to be sensitive to that. We want to be that church. But on the other hand, there are some things about Christianity that are just true. And I just got to say them. 
And one of those things is the only place to find life is in Jesus. And we want to be a community that can help you find that. Um, sometimes I battle with how to share these heavy truths with my friends who are far from God. I got, I got lots of them, people who they don't want to believe in God. They say there is no God. They got a lot of questions about God. That's, that's good. It's good to be on that quest. Uh, but I battle with how to share those strong truths. And, and um, I want to tell you a little story about a friend of mine. That, uh, man, we'd, we'd built a relationship for a couple of years and really had built some trust there. Had some regular times where we saw each other. And uh, they knew that I was a Christian. They knew that I believed in God. They knew that it affected my life. I knew about him that it was just um, not on his radar. In fact, he'd prefer not to talk about it. And, in fact, one time he said, look, I, I would love to talk about Christianity because I, I like what it's doing in your life. But to be real honest, I'm just I'm aware that there's things about my life I'd need to change. If I live for Jesus, and I, I just don't want to do that. <laughs> um, that's honesty, right? But I had an unexpected moment. We had built trust, and I thought we could just be honest with each other. And, and one day we were sitting talking, and um, he came to me and said, I've got a really good news. I've, I've, I've begun being spiritual. And uh, in my experience, that is a loaded statement. I've begun being spiritual. And so what he'd gotten into was some, um, some kind of uh, psychic spirit seance type stuff, trying to contact spirits, uh, using tarot cards and, and, uh, and, and astrology and, and things and, and, and stuff that was trying to reach out to the spirit world outside of Jesus. Now, I've experienced some crazy things along those lines. Uh, that's all I'll say at this juncture. But what I know is it doesn't lead to bright, happy places. Um, that's darkness. That's artificial. That's not Jesus. That's not the life he promises. And so all I say to my friend is, wow, okay, look, <laughs> I normally don't try to push you in this stuff, but I got to be honest, like, I want to just encourage you to stay away from that stuff, because I don't think you know what you're getting into. It's dark stuff, it's bad stuff, and, it, and I've never seen it lead anywhere good. Um, so just, you know, I care about you, I want that to happen. Uh, the response was crazy, because um, this friend, this good friend that I built trust with, he blew up on me. He said, how dare you? How dare you judge me? How dare you of all people who says you accept people and love people? How dare you judge me and tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? I thought that you were the guy who was going to go out and try to build bridges. Here you are tearing the bridge down. He told me they didn't want to talk anymore and never returned another phone call. I haven't talked to him in months. It hurts. I got to tell you, I've done everything I can to reach out to my friend and say, look, I, I just want to tell you what I thought was true. It's kind of the phrase like, hey, watch out. You're about to step into traffic. Um, that was my idea. But all that person heard from me was, I want to control your life. And sometimes the message of Jesus comes across that way, especially from Christians. Because what I wanted my friend to see more than anything was not that I thought I was better than him or that I knew more stuff than him, but that we were more alike than he could ever imagine. I've got mistakes. I've got failures. I've done things I'm not proud of. But I've discovered Jesus and it's changed my life. I don't know what's going to happen with that situation. I hope that things change. But what's my point? What's my point? This is my point. This is what I'm getting to today. Jesus did the same thing with his disciples. This is a motley crew of loudmouths. A lot of them were rejects from society. And he doesn't come in on day one and say, eh, 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 this is what you got to do. This is what you got to do. You brush your teeth and pull your pants up and tighten your belt and comb your hair and trim your mustache. Like what? Like he doesn't just come in and try to wreck shop on day one. He spends a long time loving these men. And teaching them. And letting them make mistake after mistake after mistake. These guys said some dumb things to Jesus. Jesus is like, no. Oh, guys. Okay, I've explained this. And he explains it again. 
But some things are just true. And so when Jesus hits this juncture where he's like, look, my time is coming to an end and I got to be real with you. I'm coming to give my life and this is what is going to happen to you. To find life, you got to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find me. He tells them they got to be willing to carry their own cross to follow him. It's not a light metaphor. The cross was like modern day equivalent to electric chair, gas chamber. Okay, this is a, this is a, a public execution tool. Okay, and so when he says, you got to carry your cross and follow me, these guys immediately knew things were serious. And I don't think that what he's saying here is that we should all necessarily face execution. But I think that what we've got to know is that life in Jesus is about laying down our objectives and picking up his. And say, this is not about me, this is about you. This is about me losing myself. A lot of people boldly say that they would gladly die for Jesus. And I remember being challenged in, in, in college a guy said that. He said, how many of you guys think you would give your life for Jesus? And I was one of the guys who raised my hand. He said, okay, well, that's great. But the majority of us, the majority of us are being called not to die for him, but to live for him. Which is actually a lot harder. Guys, as a church family, to be a community that's willing to lay down our objectives, pick up his, and live the life so as I close, I want you to ask this question. What does this look like for you? Okay, What does this look like for you? Um, I've got three challenges I want to give us as a church, and they're pretty easy. Uh, some are super easy. One, one of them is maybe a little bit harder. Uh, and my goal is that you'll do as many of these challenges as you can over the next uh, five weeks. Okay, This is week one. We've got four more weeks. Here are the challenges. They'll be on the screen behind me. And I encourage you just to, uh, just to, to, to write them down. The first one is this. Finish the series. Uh, this is a five-week series. And my encouragement to you is to be here every week. Every week. Because we're going to be talking about a different... Uh, thing about us that is that we can lose and find Jesus instead. And I think that it'll hit on a lot of different things uh, intentionally. Um, be here every week. I, I don't think that Jesus keeps attendance for church. I really don't. Uh, I don't think there's going to be gold stars handed out in heaven for everyone with good attendance. And for those of you who get those gold stars, like, sweet. Like, that'd be awesome. I'll be jealous of your gold star straight up. But I don't know that the Bible teaches that. But what what we need to understand is that regular, intentional discipline of being in teaching about God and being in fellowship with people who are trying to seek like-minded goals as us and seek Jesus, that's something the Bible talks all about. And so this is my challenge number one. Just be here five more weeks or four more weeks. Hey, you got one. You got one under your belt. One under your belt. What's that? 20%. Bam. Done. So that's the first challenge. Second challenge is this, and I want you to really plan for it. In your seat, I talked about these little memory verse cards, uh, the lose myself cards. Do I have one up here? Yeah, and this week we've got two scriptures on there. Matthew 16, 25. If you want to take a look at that, it'd be good. Um, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You can memorize that. You can memorize that before lunch, right? I'll give you a bonus verse this week, John 14, 6, because I said it earlier. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Each week we're going to get a different card like this. It'll be a total of five, okay? And this is not, I'm not keeping score. It really matters what is what do I say about Jesus? But the question is, what do you say? Memorizing the Bible is one of the best ways to renew your mind. I would, I would, I would be hard-pressed to find a better way. Because what happens is when we're in a struggle, when we're in a fix, when we need encouragement, when someone asks us for advice, what happens is we can reach into a reservoir of knowledge that we have, not from our own experience, not from some class we took, not from a cinem- seminar or a YouTube video, but from God's word. 
And I can't tell you how many times it's been available for me in my brain because I've memorized scripture. So these are two simple ones. I want to encourage you, the second challenge is to memorize these verses. And then as a church, we can say, hey, we're going to start this year on a fresh foot and we're going to try to do some things spiritually. Put this thing uh, in a prominent place in your house, on your refrigerator, your Facebook page. Put it in your pocket. I suggested uh, tape, tape it to your cell phone and then you see it on the back when you go look at it because you're probably picking that thing up more than anything else. Uh, but you can do a lot of things to help you remember to remember stuff. But you still have to take the time to remember it. And so it's going to mean some of this. Look at it. Look up at the sky and try to say it to yourself. Look at it or get a partner or whatever it takes for you. That's the second challenge. Memorize the verses. And the third challenge is this. It's a little bit harder. We're going to talk about a lot of things over the next five weeks, but there's a good chance that I'm not going to cover every single issue that every single person in this room is going to be dealing with. Would you agree with that? That would be too long of a sermon every week, and you would go home and I would be talking by myself. Um, and so there are probably things that we're not going to discuss. We're, we're going to discuss the topics. This week was finding life. Next week is about uh, finding um, security. We're going to talk about finding purpose. We're going to talk about finding uh, humility. We're going to talk about finding peace. Those are five things we're going to seek to find. But there are probably specific things that you need to lose. And so what I want to encourage you to do is get a pen and paper, maybe a buddy, maybe a spouse, and evaluate what's keeping me away from God. Because as I lose myself, it's going to have to be tailored fit to each person in the room. And so I encourage you to do that. So the three things, um, they might seem like really, really hard challenges. They might be super easy, but be here each week. Finish, uh, memorize the verses and evaluate what's keeping me away from God and uh, and challenge yourself in those things. This has been just the beginning of what I hope to be a very encouraging and transforming teaching series. And I'm looking forward to sharing it. I'm looking forward to what it's going to do in, in my life as I learn to lay myself down and pick up the objectives of Jesus. Um, I just want to encourage us. Don't be scared to say, I'm ready to lose myself. Because it'll be the best New Year's resolution that you ever made. Let me, let me pray for us this morning. God, we love you, and we praise you for your goodness and your grace. And um, Lord, as we seek to honor you by losing ourselves, I just pray that we can um, kick off this new year on a good foot. And uh, Lord, thank you for Jesus' willingness to not call us to do anything that he didn't already do himself. And so may we be willing to lay down our lives and pick up our cross, whatever that means for us in our life. Um, I thank you that he was willing to do that. Lord, as we move forward in this week, Many of us starting work in a, a fresh new way or starting school or getting back into a routine for 2015. May it not just be about the trite uh, statements of Happy New Year and resolutions, but like a real moment to reflect and, and a chance to reboot. We love you so much. And we pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.